Well, good morning, church. Oh, I can't hear y'all. Ah, yes. There you are. It's a great privilege to be with you here today. Please take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Today, as we are going to be examining Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, we're going to be reminding ourselves of the gospel and specifically how our union with Christ that we just sung about defines our identity and shapes our behavior as Christians. Having a sense of identity is important, isn't it? Because who you are is in direct correlation with who you think you are. It's in direct correlation with what you do and don't do, what interests you have, the company that you keep. And it, uh, it's something that I had to work through, specifically in my teen years, discovering who I was. And around the age of 17, I began to assert myself. I wanted to, uh, uh, how do I say this, um, you know, discover my autonomy, so to speak, as so many of you in here also did. But not in the best way. You see, I actually started to take a turn for the worst. I began acting as though I had not been raised by God-fearing parents, as though I wasn't attending my youth group and hearing the gospel on a weekly basis at church. I was doing things that I shouldn't have been doing and not doing the things that I was supposed to be doing and running with a crowd whose values were actually opposite of my own. I was actually departing from who I was raised to be. And my mother actually one day, uh, she had enough. I must have said or done something. I don't know what it was. Uh, but I'm sure that she was convinced in that moment that I did not have enough of the fear of God in me. And early one evening, she did what, she, what any mother would do to assure that that fear of God was restored. She called my dad, <laughs> who was likely on his way home from work. Now, I admit, I had a brave face when I was a teenager, you know, but... Some of you guys will know that very well. Whenever dad walks in that room, that bravery just leaks out just like a helium balloon with a hole in it, right? (laughs) When I heard he was on the phone, my stomach collapsed into itself. And some of you guys know that feeling intimately. You know how that feels. And when she was on that phone, she said, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, when she was consulting with the man himself. And with brazen confidence, she hands me the phone, and so I, hello. But to my surprise, instead of a scolding or a promise of worse to come, my father instead met me with a reminder. He said, this is not who you are. Know who you are. What a veteran move, eh? He confronted my wayward behavior by getting to the root of my issues, that being identity amnesia. My father knew that I had been raised in the Lord, that he had disciplined me, and he and my mother had striven to make sure that I was safe and flourishing in the world. They had raised me right. And deep down, I knew the same, but I was bent on going my own way. I held tightly to my own ways, but lost a grip on reality and who I was myself. Thankfully, it wasn't long before God in his mercy came to my rescue Around two years after that, in this period of discovery that I was in, I, came, I would come to true saving faith in the Lord and was excited to grow and make up for the time that I had wasted. So I thought, 
But one big and subtle problem in my early walk was finding my identity in Christ because I got wrapped up in doing for Jesus instead of what he did to, uh, for me. And I assumed that my faith in Christ and my newfound identity in him was not sufficient for living as a good Christian. Now, I knew I was saved by grace alone, and we'll go through that today. But part of me believed that it was my own efforts that earned me a sense of the fullness of who God uh, wanted me to be in Christ. This led to a spirit of legalism and repetitive patterns of besetting sin in my life that I really couldn't break out of, no matter how spiritual I was. And it wasn't, it wasn't until I began to rediscover the gospel and believe what Scripture said about my union with Christ that I began to progress more steadily in sanctification and gain victory in the battle with sin. I needed to be transformed by the renewing of my mind and reminded that my growth in the Christian life was not determined by my ability to follow God's commands. It was believing the gospel and embracing who God says I am in Christ. And this is true for all of us. No amount of working for Christ is sufficient to bring any of us to fullness in Christ. Because we already have that fullness through our union with him. And knowing who we are in Christ and knowing who he is for us is the key to living out that fullness. I want to put that key in your hands today. I want God to put that key in our hands today. Pastor Charles Leiter said this. He simplifies this concept, uh, summing up the New Testament model for growth in grace. And he summed it up in this statement. He said, know who you are and then be who you are. And this is one of the reasons why Paul has taken such pains to unflesh the gospel in the book of Romans. He wanted to assure the Roman Christians of the gospel, to explain to them a systematic theology, not just so that they would understand it, but that so they would embrace their identity in Christ. And despite the gospel's cost in Paul's personal life, he wasn't ashamed of it, was he? In fact, he proclaimed and lived the gospel in such a way that proved that the gospel was the central and most defining aspect of his identity and Christian living as a whole. Paul believed that the gospel and its realities that flowed out of it was sufficient for the Christian receiving power and progress in their walk with God. He even goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is fully to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So instead of self-made religion, God desires for us to grow in grace and become more like Christ by believing and hearing the gospel. And this is why we'll be unpacking today what it means for us to be in Christ in his, in his death and burial and resurrection. And so to help us internalize this, to internalize our identity in Christ, this sermon's points have been made into I statements that each one of us at Hope Markham should be able to affirm as we live out our faith. We should be able to say the following about ourselves based on Romans 6, 114. Number one, I have received grace, but not to sin. Number two, I am dead to sin because I have died with Christ. Number three, 
I have new life because I was raised with Christ. Number four, I am under grace and sin will not have dominion over me. Look with me in your Bible and let's read Romans 6 together. Romans 6, 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What a powerful passage of scripture. Well, the first of our four, po- uh, four points is this. I have freely received grace, but not to sin. I receive grace, but not to sin. Look at me at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, it's here that we see Paul preemptively responding to Jewish critics about the gospel of grace that he wrote about in the first five chapters in the book of Romans. You see, faithful Jews would have been convinced that grace was not enough to motivate or empower Christian behavior. And they would advocate for the necessity of a Christian's adhering to the Mosaic law to keep themselves from sinning. But in Romans 5, Paul affirms that one of the purposes of the law of Moses was to convict the people of their sin and expose sin as sinful. But he does not do so to affirm that Christians should still be under the Mosaic law. Instead, he rather takes pains to expose and to prove the superiority of the gospel of grace to the law of Moses. In Romans 5, verse 20, Paul would say that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And he anticipated that his Jewish hearers who sought to faithfully keep the law would see this gift of grace as a scandal. One of them might say, well, if God justifies someone as a gift of his grace, wouldn't that encourage them to forsake obedience to God in the fulfillment of the law and to use grace as a license to sin? It isn't long till we hear Paul's rebuttal, isn't it? Is it? 
He condemns that kind of logic and affirms that a Christian would never do such a thing because it wouldn't be an expression of who they were. Verse 2, by no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? You can hear the outrage in Paul's voice. Paul would have thought, how can someone who has received God's riches at Christ's expense hear of the good news of salvation apart from works and seek to use that as an opportunity to sin? Because that's not how you receive more grace. Paul's defending the gospel's impact not by stressing law-keeping, but by affirming an aspect of every true Christian's identity. How can we, Christians, who died to sin, still live in it? According to Paul, a Christian is not someone who just fulfills the law of God. They're someone with a changed nature, someone with a severed relationship to sin. Christians are those who have died to sin. Church, we weren't born Christians. In fact, we were born in sin, dead in sin, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, held under sin's power and spiritually unresponsive to God because of a sinful and depraved nature that each of us as human beings possesses. Prior to Christ, we were characterized by rejecting God's authority and following the beat of this world's drum. We oriented our lives to live in this present age instead of living for the age that is to come with Christ. But miracle of miracles in Ephesians 2, 5, God says that we Christians have been made alive in Christ, that we have a life, the life of God in us, and that we've been marked by the power and desire no longer to allow sin to control or enslave us. We have become dead to sin and its reign in our lives. Without skipping a beat in our text here in Romans 6, Paul is emphatically declaring what his writings in Ephesians 2 would affirm, the impossibility of a Christian living in sin. According to God, someone who is dead in sin can't live in it because it doesn't correspond with their nature. And this is the same thing that the, the same kind of teaching that the apostles had received from Jesus. A true Christian cannot and will not live in sin. They're dead to it. The apostle John agrees with Paul's teaching in 1 John 3.9 when he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, to be born of God is to have undergone the greatest change that anyone could ever undergo. It is when God, by his spirit, makes you to be alive in Christ. And one of the most fundamental proofs that you have been made alive is a break in your relationship with sin. It's not that we won't sin as Christians. I'm not preaching a moralism. We will sin, but we won't live in it. So here are some questions before we move on and unpack our text. Let's put ourselves to the test Is your life communicating your deadness to sin or are you living in sin? Do you repent of your sin with sorrow in your heart toward toward God or do you continue to justify your sin to repeat it? Do you avoid opportunities to sin? Are you prudent? Do you hide hide yourself from evil or do you look 
for opportunities to indulge your flesh? Do you encourage others to honor God or do you drag others into sin with you intentionally? You see, there's a difference between living in sin and struggling with it. And how you answer those questions may reveal, although you think you're dead to sin, you might actually be dead in sin. Yes, the Christian will be tempted, and yes, they will stumble, but we ought to be characterized by a gradual, sometimes slow, progression in our obedience to God's word. When we're tempted to sin, we should remind ourselves of our point here. We have received grace, but not to sin. The grace of God is not a safety net to fall into after we've willfully disobeyed God. No, grace empowers us to say no to sin and to say yes to God. So when temptation knocks at the door, we ought to remind ourselves, I have freely received grace, but not to sin. And it's that same grace that keeps that takes us from being dead in sin to being dead to sin because of our union with Christ in his death, which is signified by our baptisms. And this is why we can affirm the second point of this sermon, I am dead to sin because I have died with Christ. I am dead to sin because I have died with Christ. Look at me at verses, with, uh, verses 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, some would wrongly say that this text proves that baptism unites us to Christ. They would contend that a person is not made one with Christ by faith alone, but by faith plus works. But whoever would agree with them would be misinterpreting Paul's writing and refusing to consider the larger context of the book of Romans. Those who assert that baptism would bring believers into union with Christ would be denying the entire theme of the book of Romans. That righteousness, the righteousness of God, is freely given to guilty and condemned sinners who have placed their faith alone in Christ alone. No sinner comes to union with Christ, the perfect Son of God, without atonement for their sin. And they can't atone for their sin by any work that they've done. It's not by works that we're united with Christ. Not even baptism. Listen to these verses from Paul earlier on in the the book of Romans. And you're going to see for yourself if baptism unites a person to Christ or if it's faith alone that saves Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3.21-25, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Though re- through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 4, 5. 
And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, it is not that Paul would assert that baptism was not necessary for the Christian. After all, he's talking to Christians in Rome where he hasn't been yet, and he's assuming they've already been baptized, isn't he? Paul would have assumed that every Christian had been baptized already. It was the universal norm for all of those who profess faith in Christ. And so if you have professed faith in Christ, if you are bearing fruit and you have seen the work of God in your soul and you haven't been baptized, my only question is what's stopping you? Do you identify with Jesus? Baptism is a symbol of our identification with Christ and our union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Everybody remember our theme today, identity? When a person is baptized, they are identifying with Christ. They are saying that Christ lived the life I couldn't live and died the death that I deserve to die. They're saying that I was that, uh, that he was treated as I should have been treated in order that I might be treated as he deserves to be treated. When a person comes to faith in Christ and accepts and embraces Christ, they also accept and embrace him as their representative before God. He becomes the cornerstone of your identity, replacing your former representative, Adam. Adam was appointed by God as a representative of the human race, but because of his disobedience, the consequence of sin came upon humanity. Romans 5.12, if you want to look there, says of Adam, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's sin became ours. And in Romans 5.19, it says many were made sinners by nature, because of his disobedience. Now, I don't know if anyone recognizes here, the human race need another, needed another representative before God. We needed another representative, another federal head to stand before God and give an account. Someone who would reverse the curse of sin and death and give us the righteousness that, that we could not earn and give us the life that we could not create in ourselves. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so glorious. God recognized we could not redeem ourselves, so he sent the Son of God, born of a virgin, perfect and without sin, the true and better Adam, perfectly righteous, dying for the redemption of condemned criminals. Romans 5, 17 to 18 says this, For if because of one man's trespass. Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Christ became our representative, and when we placed our faith in him, 
We not only became associated with him, we became a part of him. Isn't that what we call ourselves? The body of Christ? The moment that we believe unto salvation, we are immersed in Christ. Baptized into Christ for eternity. Believers here at Hope Markham, we have been made to be in union with Christ when we believe on him for salvation, not as we obey God in our walk with him. As verse 10 in our passage says, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. That means when he died to sin, we died to sin because we have become one with him in his death. Union with Christ changes our identity forever. Marcus Johnson, theologian and expert on this topic, says the doctrine of our union with Christ is profoundly real and intensely intimate. It informs who we are at the core of our being. And so after two millennia post-death of Jesus, through our union with him, we at Hope Markham can say, I am dead to sin because I died with Christ. But being dead to sin isn't the only benefit that Christ has made available uh, to us. Through our union with him in his resurrection, we who, are now, we who are, are now dead to sin have been made alive in Christ and will walk in this newness of life as we spoke of earlier. That brings us to our third point. I have new life because I was raised with Christ. I have new life because I was raised with Christ. Let's look back at our text, verses 5 to 10, and see how Paul unpacks it. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death, he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And as you can see, Paul has taken out his microscope and is now magnifying the doctrine of the union, of, of union with Christ. And his logic is clear. If we have been united with Christ and receive the benefits of his death, the atonement of our sin, we will also be receiving the benefits of the resurrection. When Christ appears again, we will begin living with him for eternity. As verse 9 says, we will also live with him. But it's interesting to note that this passage is not primarily written with a supreme focus on the return of Jesus, although it is in there. It's written with Christ's work accomplished in the past as the central defining element of every believer's identity in their present day living. In other words, what Christ has accomplished and achieved in the past in his death, burial, and resurrection 
is guaranteed to create a radical change, a power, a sense of life in our lives today. This is what Paul means when he says newness of life that we walk in. It is made possible by the death of our old selves in Christ and his life being made to dwell in us. It is the result of us being united with Christ in his resurrection. If Jesus is, as he says in John 11, the resurrection and the life, and the true God and eternal life, shouldn't a Christian's life reflect the fact that they have life in them, the very life of Christ? Surely it will. Because living according to sin's desire was your previous defining aspect of your life. But now, as a Christian, it's the opposite. D.A. Carson says that our identity with Christ, our identification with him in his resurrection, enables us to live according to God's will under the Spirit's direction. This can mean, this can mean for me that I can say no to the next plate of food if I don't need it. This means I can avoid apps and websites that are going to lead me into immorality. This means I can be refusing to be caught in the web of gossip and lies at the workplace. This means that no matter the cost, I can trust God and be honest instead of lie. Paul is speaking of a newness of life that is a result of us coming from death to life in a spiritual sense. And this is not just found in the New Testament. God speaks of this in a very similar way in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, when he says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's speaking to us who have been created in Christ This is God saying, out with the old and in with the new. As we look back on verse 6 of our passage, we see God accomplishing this work by the crucifixion, not just of Christ, but of our old selves. Verse 6, our old self was crucified. This means that when you came to Christ, your old self is dead. It is gone, and you became a new person altogether. This means that when you became united with Christ, you became a new person with a new identity. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It means that the person that you once were prior to coming to Christ is dead and gone and will never return. What once defined you is no longer the root of your identity because Christ is now the root of your identity. And being united with him becomes the focal point of your identity. Guys, if, you're, if you are a Christian today, you need to be believing this about yourself. This is what changes the game. The true Christian can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beloved, this is not just the turning of a new leaf. It is not behavioral modification. It is not a New Year's resolution. It is God creating life in a person where there was none. 
It is the end of one person and the creation of another. Early church father and theologian St. Augustine was known for his slavery to lust and his promiscuity before coming to Christ. And after his conversion, he would demonstrate what it meant to be dead to sin and alive to God when he heard himself being called by one of his former mistresses. She would say, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. To which he would reply, yes, but it is not I. Is that how you respond when sin is calling to you? Are you currently entertaining sin in your life or flirting with temptation? Are you considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? The old you is dead. Sin no longer reigns over you as a slave master. You're no longer under its reign and rule. You're no longer a slave to sin. Christ has abolished sin's rule over you as a Christian. You were enslaved to sin, but now you are a slave of Christ. I feel like I need to say this today. Because in the, in the, in the evangelical sphere, sometimes we get so preoccupied with focusing on our depravity that we forget about our new nature in Christ. Paul would document his own battle with sin. Read Romans 7. He pronounced a curse on himself because of it, but he didn't stay there. He directed his hope to Christ and what Christ had done for him. And this is why we would sing in a song like Christ alone, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. We can say I have new life because I was raised with Christ. Now our final point is going to be all about putting what you have just heard into practice. We've focused extensively on knowing who we are and now it's time to take some moments and focus on being who we are. I mentioned earlier in my introduction that when I was younger in my faith, I was more bent on doing in the Christian life as a means to knowing who Christ was instead of knowing who Christ was and then simply being who I was in him. And I think that's the reason why some of us might be in a state of hopelessness as it relates to besetting sin in our lives. The battle with sin can be a very weary one. So much so that it can have us thinking, might deceive us to think, into thinking that we are slaves to sin once again. And here's why. Paul mentions in this text a term called the body of sin, synonymous with the phrase body of death that he coins in Romans 7, 24. Most of us know the body of death that Paul is speaking about as the flesh. It's the body we live in that is weakened and corrupted by sin. It's, no lo- it's, it's obvious then why it would be normal for us to have feelings or cravings to commit sinful acts. But it does not change the fact that sin is no longer master over us. The true Christian can say, I am under grace and sin will not have dominion over me. I am under grace, and sin 
will not have dominion over me. Look with me one last time at verses 11 to 14 as we conclude our time here together. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness or for righteousness. My apologies. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And we see in these final verses here, Paul is commanding the church in Rome to consider everything that they have just heard about the gospel and their union with Christ and hold to it as fact and reality. Unless they believed verses 1 to 10, they would not experience the fullness of gospel of the gospel and the victory in the Christian life. They would inevitably, inevitably be thinking that sin was still master over them. They would be allowing sin to reign. But the fact was, they were dead to sin and alive to God. They had power over sin, not to allow sin to lord it over them. Follower of Christ, do you believe this about yourself today? Do you believe that Christ has given you himself? Do you believe that you have become a part of Christ and share in his power over sin? If you do, then don't let sin reign today as though you were still enslaved to it. Don't entertain temptations to sin. Be quick to cut thoughts down that would encourage you to sin. Cut yourself off from corrupting influences to your faith. Memorize God's word and respond to the voice of the tempter with it. That's what someone does who considers themselves dead to sin and alive to God. They use all that they are for God's glory and present themselves before him for the carrying out of his will. And in verse 13, the word instruments used here is to summarize all that we have been given by God. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our souls, these are tools, weapons even, that can be used in worship to the glory of God or for the indulgence of sin. It's up to us to use them as God intends us to. The reality of our union with Christ is so far-reaching, it means that all that we are is united to Christ in all that he is. We are a part of him. We have one body, mind, soul, heart, church. Let's use these as weapons to battle against sin. And how? By presenting each part of ourselves for God's glory. Those who trust in Christ have been promised that sin will have dominion, no dominion over them, and they can take that promise to the bank. Sin will have no dominion over you, says God. Do you believe him? But is sin a dominating force in your life today? Does it make you obey its passions? Does your lust dominate you? Does your anger dominate you? Does your greed for more dominate you? Does your pursuit of pleasing people dominate your life? It doesn't have to. Sin is a cruel master. 
It's never going to be satisfied until it has consumed us entirely and only seeks to reign over us until it brings us into the grave and ultimately into hell. We need a savior. You need a savior to break you free from its slavery. But that savior isn't going to be the law of Moses. The law can constrain you from sinning, but it cannot free you from sin's dominion. Every person who has ever sought self-reform and self-made religion has only found themselves back and slaved to sin. Because everything that we do can't shatter this. It can't break the reality of our slavery to sin. If you want to be free from sin's reign today, come to Christ. He conquered sin and he conquered death. Repent and believe the gospel. Forsake your old master and throw off your chains to sin. The only way to be free from slavery with sin is to submit to God and claim Christ as your Lord and master. And in return, you will receive grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. You'll no longer live under the requirements of the law or the condemnation of the law. You're going to be living under the freedom of God's grace, welcomed into his family, held fast by the Savior, engraved on his palm, welcomed into the joy of your master, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the portion of those who trust in Christ. And as William Barclay said, your inspiration for Christian living will not come of fear of what, will, of what God will do to you, but out of an inspiration, a joy for what he has done for you in Christ. If you have surrendered to Christ as Lord, you can join God's people and say, I have received grace, but not to sin. I am dead to sin because I died with Christ. I have new life because I was raised with Christ. And finally, I am under grace, and sin will not have dominion over me. Church, join me as we pray and process our identity in Christ as we make our boast in him as we worship after this sermon. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come. God, as Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you. Lord, hearing and knowing of the saints and their faith here at Hope Markham, I am encouraged to know that I have brothers and sisters in Christ. My prayer, Lord, is that we would simply believe the gospel and live it out before the world so that people will see that your son is worthy. Please let your word define who we are and not this world. Please help us not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds for your fame and honor and glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.